0: Well, we're continuing in our brief series in the Proverbs this morning in search of wisdom. And this morning in particular, we'll be looking at Proverbs chapter 3. Here we're reminded that wisdom is for life. It is really for all of life and it is for the good life. If you desire the good life, then you should desire the wisdom of God. I'll read Proverbs chapter 3. And then we'll pray and we'll look at it more in detail. Proverbs chapter three. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace. They will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it. When you have it with you, do not plan evil against your neighbor who (coughs) dwells, dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools yet disgrace. Father, thank you for your word. Again, your word, which is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. I pray that you'd open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight For, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three main points in this uh, chapter, in chapter 3 of Proverbs. In verses 1 through 12, we'll see that wisdom leads to a life oriented towards God. In verses 13 through 20, we'll see that wisdom leads to a life blessed by God. In verses 21 through 35, we'll see that wisdom leads to a life secured by God, a life oriented towards God, a life blessed by God and a life secured by God. We'll look at that first point in verses 1 through 12. Wisdom leads to a life oriented towards God. I want to read it again just to make sure that we have it fresh in our heads. Verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Again, wisdom leads to a life oriented towards God. If you take a cursory look at the first 12 verses here, one of the most frequent words in the section is the Lord. In the course of the proverb, Solomon is interested in helping his son to orient himself in his life towards the Lord. That first line, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. In the context of the proverb, Solomon clearly believes that it is his responsibility to help his son to grow and to develop into a man and a man who fears the Lord. Solomon is not waiting for the church to do this. He doesn't shop around until he finds the temple that has the best Sunday school class for young Jewish boys. He doesn't shop around until he finds the temple with the best and most vibrant youth rabbi or the most happening youth group for teenage boys. No. Solomon believes, along with the rest of scripture, that it is his responsibility as a parent to give attention to the moral development of his son. It is not okay, contrary to popular belief, to just let his son develop however he wants. That free-range parenting idea. It's not okay just to let the society, in whatever ways the society's winds are blowing today, to guide and develop his son's moral compass. Solomon is not interested in that. Solomon understands that it is his responsibility as a parent to bring up his son in Paul's words, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There in Ephesians chapter six, verse four, that's what Paul commands us. He lays it out there. Really, he addresses fathers, but fathers are the representative heads of their families. He tells fathers not to exasperate their children, but again, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that is ultimately the responsibility of parents in the sight of God. Not the church, not Sunday school lady, and certainly not the society or government. The God whom Solomon made clear from Ecclesiastes is going to bring everything into judgment will hold parents accountable to this. He's not going to hold parents accountable to whether or not their children believe the gospel because they can't, you can't do anything about that. It's not your responsibility. But it is your responsibility to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to lead them to the gospel. Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, Solomon says. There's a sense of urgency, of deliberateness in Solomon's teaching, He teaches his son what is right. He teaches in the way of wisdom, but he also teaches deliberately that his son should hold on to his teaching. Solomon teaches in such a way to encourage his son to think highly of his words, not easily to forsake them. I've said this before, but we must do both. Certainly we should teach our children the right things, but we should teach them and bring them up in such a way that they highly value our word. We should not allow them to develop the habit of easily forgetting our words Or forsaking our words, or treating our words lightly as if they don't matter. Or treating the words of another as more important or significant. Solomon understands that this is a matter of life and death for his son. Look at verse 2. My son, do not forget my teaching. Again, verse 1. Let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Wisdom is a matter of life and death. Teaching wisdom to the next generation is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of blessing or curse. It's a matter of living in such a way that leads to either the blessing of God. Again, length of days and years of life and peace. Consider that for a moment. Length of days, long life, years of long life and peace, prosperity and peace for all of those long days. However long your day is, if you have the wisdom of God, what the word of God is promising is prosperity and peace. Now again, these are proverbs, so these are not absolute commands. It's not to say that you will always have your pockets overflowing with, with financial resources. Prosperity and the kind of long life and peace that's being envisioned here is more than that. But it's not less than that. It's life and peace. It's what's being offered if you walk in the wisdom of God. Would you rather have something else? Would you rather have the opposite? The opposite of the blessing of God is his curse, a shorter life, no peace, and ultimately death and judgment. That's the opposite of walking in wisdom. That's what the Bible calls foolishness. Parents need to teach their children in such a way that they understand this. We need to give them words that lead to life and make sure that they know that our words are words that lead to life because they're the words of God himself, the the giver and sustainer and judge of life. That anything less than following the words of wisdom that we give will lead to a shorter life and trouble for all their days instead of the peace that God offers Solomon believed, again, that it was his responsibility to give attention to the moral development of his son, to bring him up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And he instructs him how to live. As he instructs him how to live, he also instructs him the importance of holding fast to his teaching. And ultimately holding fast to his teaching because Solomon is giving him the wisdom of God. He's offering him the wisdom that comes from the Lord. Beyond verse 2, between verses 3 through 12, there are five exhortations that he gives that are not exhaustive of all of his teaching, but are representative of a life that holds fast to wisdom, a life that's oriented towards God. If you possess wisdom, this is what your life is going to look like. This is what your life is going to lead to. (coughs) The first is that wisdom will lead you to be faithful as the Lord is faithful. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Well, where does steadfast love and faithfulness come from? Well, it's a part of who God is. You remember when Moses prayed to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory back in Exodus chapter 30 three I believe it was and Lord responded just that way he showed him his glory he had to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock because he said no one can see my glory in all of its fullness and live you would be completely obliterated if you saw all of my glory but he hid him in the cleft of the rock and he said you can see my backside the backside of me as I'm passing by and as he passes by Moses you know a lot about people what they think is the most important when they introduce themselves, right? You ever introduce yourself to people at a party or at a gathering, a social event, and just listen to the first things that they say about themselves? What do they say about themselves? Do they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have you know, kids? Do they say, well, I work at Social Security? Do they say, well, you know, I have uh, a Porsche? <laughs> I don't know anybody who has a Porsche, but I'm just saying, you know, what do they say about themselves? How do they identify themselves? Whatever they say about themselves is what they think is the most important. And you can determine the kind of person it is by how they identify themselves. Well, what does the Lord say about himself at this point when Moses says, show me your glory? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what the Lord says about himself. That's how he identifies himself. That's how he introduces himself to Moses. That's the most important thing on the mind of God about him. You want to know about me? The Lord says, this is what you need to know about me. I'm a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's a part of his essential character. If these things are true of God, and if we're seeking to live life well, that's what we said wisdom is, living life skillfully, living it well in a world that God has created, in a world that God will judge. If we're seeking to live life well, then shouldn't we seek to live like God? Shouldn't we seek to be like him? If he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, then we should be full of steadfast love and faithfulness. As again, Solomon encouraged his son, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Even if everyone else is unfaithful, even if everyone else forsakes love, you hold fast to them. He says, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Let it be clear for everyone to see. Wear it like a necklace, in other words. It should be evident in all that you do. The believer should be known as someone who's dependable. Are you dependable? Do you keep your word? If you say you're going to do something, do you actually do it? Are you faithful in your relationships? That is who God is. That's who we ought to be. He says, wear it like a necklace. He says, write it on the tablet of your heart. We talked about the heart from Proverbs chapter two. The things that we listen to will go in one ear and out the other if we don't allow them to enter into our heart. They enter into our heart as we ascribe worth or value to them. We ought to treat wisdom that way, that it is valuable, that it is the greatest treasure. Solomon is telling his son to treat steadfast love and faithfulness as a treasure so that it sinks down into his heart. Remember, the heart is a seat of the intellect, emotion, and will. That's where all of our decisions are made. That's where we get the motivation to do anything. And in order for us to be motivated to have steadfast love and to be faithful as God is faithful. We must believe that those things are important. We have to value them, treasure them. He says, write it on the tablet of your heart. This has to be one of the most important things to you. You have to believe it to be important because it's important to God. Result in verse four. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. (coughs) Obviously, God will be pleased with you if you're seeking to live in accord with his character, but you'll also find favor in the sight of man. The world may scoff at God, at the idea of God, the person of God. They may scoff at the word. They may scoff at you for going to church, for reading your Bible. But no one scoffs at a person who genuinely loves others and who is faithful. From romantic relationships to work relationships, the one who is faithful is the one who everyone wants on their team. That's the one who everyone wants to be next to. Conversely, the one who is hateful, spiteful, abusive, the one who is unfaithful is and always will be a blight on society, one to stay away from. You don't want to be friends with that person. If they're unreliable, you don't want to be friends with them. If you can't depend on them to keep their word, if they don't love and serve others, you don't want to be next to that kind of person. Everyone knows that. Solomon is saying to his son, don't be that guy. Your life ought to be so oriented towards God that you seek to be like Him in every way, especially in this way that steadfast love and faithfulness characterize your life before both God and man, in public life and in private. Number two, not only will you seek to be faithful as God is faithful, but wisdom will lead you to be dependent on the Lord's guidance. Look at verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The emphasis is on wisdom needed for future decisions. We see that in the final words. He will make straight your paths. That's a result. There are a myriad of decisions that we need to make in life. Some are clear. For some, there are clear commands in scripture that tell us what to do. Do not murder. You don't have to wonder what that means. Everyone understands what it means. Not the murder. That's pretty clear, right? Don't lie, don't steal, love one another, not just with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. I think everyone gets that. But for the rest of the decisions in our lives, the things that are less clear, where should I go for school? What job should I take? Who should I marry? As a church, things like future ministries or the purchase of a new roof. For those kinds of questions, we need the wisdom of God. This kind of wisdom is not displayed in clear commandments, but rather in principles found in Scripture. That's why we're told to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, lean not on our own understanding in all of our ways, acknowledge him, because we need to look to him for those principles to make decisions. Wisdom will lead you to trust in the Lord with all your heart. You won't be half-hearted in your trust. You won't be double-minded, as James says. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But you'll trust him with all your heart. You'll trust him with all of your ways and everything that you do. Every concern you have, every question, every thought, you'll trust the Lord with. There's no legitimate distinction between that which is sacred and that which is secular when it comes to seeking the wisdom of God and making decisions. What I mean is that you cannot say as a believer that I should seek the wisdom of the Lord for some decisions because these things pertain to spiritual matters. But I don't really need to seek the Lord for other decisions because they're not spiritual matters they're secular matters. Paul says in first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do. Rather, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says that even eating and drinking is a matter of glorifying God. Whatever you do doesn't matter what it is. All of it should be. Submitted to the will of God. We must acknowledge him in all of our ways. What is it to acknowledge him? The closest thing I can think of to illustrate is that illustrate that is when our kids were very young, um, we impressed upon them the need to stay close to us when we were out and about. And I think I've given this illustration before, but we didn't really want our kids wandering off. We trained them to stay near because it's safer to do that. You see some kids nowadays who just kind of run off. We were driving, me and the girls one day, I can't remember exactly where we were going, I think, Maybe we we're going to a babysitting job or something for one of the kids, but we saw a child running down the road by themselves, com- just completely by themselves. And this kid probably just finished learning how to walk. I mean, they were that young. Oh, running down the sidewalk. And I stopped, and I'm thinking, what is happening right now? And I thought about getting out and going and getting the kid, but I'm like, I'm, I'm me, and I'm getting out of a van going over to pick up some kid who's walking down the street. That's not going to work out well in any neighborhood. So we were just kind of keeping an eye on the kid. And then, you know, I look up and I see this father just kind of burst out of the house and the mother's coming after. And he's obviously looking around. And I, you know, just kind of did one of these numbers and pointed back because the kid was like, you know, running down the sidewalk beside our van. And I'm like, how does that happen? How do you get to the point in life to where your little kid, is able to get out of the house on their own and literally run down the street. Well, we worked hard. We weren't perfect at it, but we worked hard to make sure that kind of thing didn't happen in our household. So if the kiddos wanted to go far, if we were at a playground, for example, and they wanted to go to a swing that was physically far away from us, even though we still had to have eyes on them, they couldn't go where we couldn't see them, they would have to get permission. And so they would come up to us And they would acknowledge us and they would ask for permission and they would make sure that we had the perspective of what was going on, where they were going to go, and that we gave them the permission to go and do that. And it's that kind of acknowledgement. It's not just running off and doing it on your own, but it's looking to the Lord and asking him, Lord, is this okay? Does this make sense? Is this good? That's the kind of dependence we should have on him. And wisdom, the wisdom of God will lead you to do that. Again, when things are clear, when the word of God is clear, it's easier. The question is, how do you figure out those kinds of things when things are not clear? We need to acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways. We need to look for principles from his word to make sure that the decision we're going to make is pleasing to him, that it honors him that it's okay with him. We sang the song earlier, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. If we believe that, then we should seek him in everything that we do, in every decision that we make. We talked about some principles from, of wisdom from the word of God earlier on in this series to distinguish between two possible good options. I told you to ask yourself, is it righteous, just, and equitable? Because the Lord wants us to be that kind of person. Will it help you to accomplish God's purposes? Again, we talk about being faithful as the Lord is faithful. Is it going to help you to be like him in every way? And his purposes in general, right? So we're called as a church to make disciples of all nations. We're called as a church to love one another. Whatever this thing is that you're deciding to do, is it going to help you to do that better? Or is it going to prohibit you from doing that? And all of the other purposes that God has for his people, if you're a parent, is it going to help you to parent better for his glory? If you're a child, is going to help you to be obedient for his glory? If you're a husband, if you're a wife, is it going to help you to do that better for his glory? If God has called you while you're single, is it going to help you to be single and to serve him well for his glory? Whatever your occupation is, is, God, is, it, is the decision that you're making, is it going to help you to do what God has called you to do better? That's what you have to find out. Is there a clear path forward? We talked about that as well. Sometimes we talk about doors being opened and closed. I mean, doors being opened and closed is kind of irrelevant. I mean, Jesus blew that out of the water. He said, it, he said to ask, seek, and knock. If the door is closed, don't just walk away because it's closed. Knock on the door. And if it's the Lord's will, he'll let you in. Sometimes we need to be patient and we need to knock longer. Either way, we need to seek the Lord. Have you sought godly counsel? What do those who are older and wiser in the Lord have to say about this decision you're making? Whatever the decision is, again, we're acknowledging him in all of our ways. Not just those who you know are going to agree with you, right? Sometimes we do that. We go to our friends, our peers, because we know they think the same way that we do, and they like the same kinds of things that we do, and they, you know, they, they like us, and so they're going to agree with us. But don't just go to the people who are going to agree with you. Go to those who are older and wiser in the Lord who can help to counsel you through this. And obviously we need to be praying. James says, if you lack wisdom, he needs to ask of God. The point of all these things is you consider principles from the word of God is to make decisions in your life. As you make decisions in your life is to seek to acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways. Everything that you do, you need to acknowledge him first. Not my will, Jesus said, but your will be done. That needs to be our attitude in everything. Everything wisdom will guide you to that attitude again is your life oriented towards god wisdom will help you to do this it'll help you to be faithful as the lord is faithful It'll help you to be dependent on the lord's guidance to acknowledge him in all that you do next it'll help you to be holy as he is holy look at verses seven and eight be not wise in your own eyes fear the lord and turn away from evil it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones Now, this is related to the prior in a sense that there's a caution against thinking that we know best, right? Be not wise in your own eyes and not trusting on the Lord in the Lord. The difference here that we're not talking about decisions in general. This is talking about issues of morality. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, the fear of the Lord has to do with knowing that he is judge. Everything you do will come into judgment. Therefore, wisdom will lead you to turn away from that which is evil. That which is evil should be avoided at all costs. In the New Testament, we see commands like 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. Even if it just looks evil, stay away from it. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Sometimes when it comes to sexual immorality, we feel like we can handle it or we can kind of skirt on the outskirts of it and we'll be okay. Paul says, don't play with it. Don't. You you need to treat it like it's a coiled snake and flee from it. Again, we tend to think that we can handle it. Whatever it is, we tend to think, we talked about this in Proverbs chapter two, that we can handle things like the influence of godless ideology in our society or The passions of the world. And maybe we can handle it until we can't. And all it takes is one time for us to not be able to handle it. For the consequences to be something from which we cannot come back. Wisdom will lead us to turn away from evil. Our scripture reading from this morning. Peter underscores the importance of our holiness. He says as obedient children. First Peter, chapter one, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He says, when you were living like a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner, you were doing so because you were ignorant of who God was. You didn't know who he was. You didn't know the truth of who God is. You didn't know the truth of his holiness. But now, you know. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy wisdom of God gives you the desire to be holy, as Peter says, as obedient children. We're no longer ignorant of who God is. In fact, we're part of his family now. Over back in Proverbs, listen to the last part, verse 8. It says, here's the result. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We talked about this a bit in uh, Sunday school this morning. When we seek after that which is evil, we usually don't do so because we want to do evil. But we do so because we believe the thing we're pursuing is good. That it'll be good for us in some way. It'll bring us enjoyment. It'll bring us some kind of pleasure. It'll help us to accomplish our purposes. It'll make us look better in the eyes of others. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We don't, as believers, tend to seek after that which is evil because it's evil. It's evil. We do so because we think it'll benefit us in some way. And yet here Solomon reminds his son something that we fail to remember ourselves and that we fail to teach when we teach our children holiness and righteousness. Solomon reminds his son that there is good in obedience. There is blessing in obedience. There is joy. There is pleasure. It will be healing, he says. It'll be refreshment to your flesh and to your bones. Every part of you will benefit from pursuing the holiness of God, from turning away from evil, from abstaining, from pursuing his holiness and his glory. There is good that you will find from that. You either believe that or you don't. Well, The word of God is clear. The reward of God is better than whatever the world can promise. This was the testimony of Moses. Do you remember from Hebrews chapter 11? It reminded us that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household and he had all the rights and privileges of Pharaoh's household. But at some point in his life, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I think that's a beautiful testimony. Moses understood well that there would be pleasure if he continued to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he understood well that he would be mistreated if he chose to be identified with the people of God. But he chose that instead because he knew that this was better. Likewise, there is pleasure if we choose to be identified as the son of the world. It may be fleeting, but it is pleasure. And there will be mistreatment if we choose to be identified with the people of God. But this text reminds us that there's a different kind of pleasure, a different kind of joy, all-encompassing, eternal, soul-fulfilling, healing and refreshing kind of good that comes when we follow the wisdom of God, when we pursue his holiness, his righteousness, his truth. This is the very joy and satisfaction that Jesus himself spoke of. That he enjoyed, as it says also in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Think about how shameful the cross is. How much suffering he had to endure. There was suffering. I'm not one, when it comes to Easter, to you know, spend a whole sermon talking about the heinousness of the cross and how you know, painful it was and how... You know, just going into gritty details about the suffering that he endured. The point is that he suffered and he suffered unto death. That's the point in New Testament, in the New Testament. It was painful, though. And that's part of the point. It wasn't a cakewalk. But he was able to endure that suffering, that mistreatment, because of the joy that was set before him on the other side of it. And the same can be true for us when we choose his wisdom. Number four, honor the Lord with your wealth, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We talked about this during our Bible study this past Wednesday. There's a consistent theme in the book of Proverbs about wisdom and money. We tend not to want to talk about nor hear about money in the church these days. Part of the reason for that is the abuse that the church has suffered historically from those who took advantage of the church, claiming spiritual benefit for more of the money of God's people. The other main reason why we don't wanna talk about money is because of the covetousness in our hearts, if we are just being honest. It is true that you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their money, and people don't like to talk about that. You can tell what they prioritize, you can tell what they treasure, what they value. Entertainment from video game consoles to expensive streaming and cable packages. Some great and wonderful vacation they always wanted to go on. Perhaps the appearance of wealth and prestige is important, whether it is name brand clothing that you can't live without or some expensive shoe or purse. The best kinds of electronics. I can be guilty of that. At least wanting the best kinds of electronics the fancy car you drive, the nicest house in the nicest neighborhoods. Take a look at someone's checkbook register or their account statement online to see how they spend their money, and you'll learn a lot about what's in their heart and what they prioritize. Perhaps many vices, various kinds of drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, certain kinds of foods. The increase in those who develop diabetes in our society is evidence of our love for sugar and sweets. The text says, honor the Lord with your wealth. That's not a difficult concept, right? The question is, do you do it? The wise honor the Lord with their wealth. The fool does not, but instead keeps more wealth for themselves and their purposes. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. We don't really trade in produce. Most of us are not farmers. Ours is not an agrarian society. However, the principle of honoring the Lord with the first fruits still applies. Do you, for example, give to the Lord after you're done all your bill paying shopping and entertaining for the month or do you give first before you do anything else that's the application of this principle give to the lord first to his work first well i have so many bills and i gotta buy food and so on and so forth some people have for sure financial issues that they have very little to come in but jesus even praised the widow who gave out of her poverty in matthew mark chapter 12 So being impoverished does not preclude giving. Others have little to work with because they don't use what they have well. They use it foolishly. Again, they have money to use on entertainment, that cable bill, those video games, to use to satisfy their vices, again, drugs, alcohol, certain kinds of foods, clothing items, but they don't have money to pay their bills and money to give to the Lord's work. They can go out to breakfast, lunch, or dinner multiple times a week, but again, they have no money to give to the Lord. The text says, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. In case you're wondering, this is not just a New Testament principle. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Give out of your abundance to meet the needs of others, Paul says. Verse 13, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. You give to the needs of others. Give for the sake of others, not for our own sake. Plan to give ahead of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead To you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And you show that you are a cheerful giver by arranging ahead of time what you're going to give. Don't just wait until after you've done all your good stuff and then, you know you give God the nickels that are left over as you give trust God to provide second corinthians chapter 8 second uh, corinthians chapter 9 God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every work, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As we give, we give trusting that God's going to provide. and We give ultimately for the joy of others. It continues in that passage for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Whatever you do with your money is a matter of wisdom. How you use your money will show whether or not you fear the Lord. Some people approach giving to the church as they do their memberships in their local Sam's Club or Costco. I give if they have what I want. I give when I'm satisfied. I give if the preacher... As long as the preacher doesn't step on my toes. I give when I feel like I can. And if I don't feel like I can, or if something else has taken up that that money that I set aside for the Lord, oh well. But again, the reality is that the reason why we give first starts with who God is. And it's that he's worthy of honor. That's what Solomon says, right? Honor the Lord with your wealth. And if we, as one of my dear friends in the ministry says, give to what we care about, then we ought to care about the ministry of the Lord. We ought to want to see it supported, to see the gospel supported, to see those who benefit from the ministry supported. We ought to want to give in honor to the Lord. And don't forget the promise in verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The practice in the Old Testament of giving to the Lord first, the first fruits, was an acknowledgement that it was the Lord who provided all things, that all their produce was from His hand, and to give to Him first was to honor Him, to proclaim their dependence on Him, and to show that they trusted Him to provide for all their needs. They didn't need to squirrel away all their produce and get all that their hearts desired first and then give to the Lord after. They trusted God enough to give to Him first believing that he would continue to meet all their needs. Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats bursting with wine. Now, this is not name it and claim it theology. I'm not personally (laughs) promising you that you will have your pockets fat and swollen if you give to the church. That's not the point. All this proverb is saying is that those who are faithful to honor the Lord with their wealth will be taken care of. And that's true. The Lord takes care of his people. We have known many for whom this is true. Our family has always given to whatever church we belong to, and we've always given to missions. We have a number of missionaries that we personally support, aside from whatever we give to the church, and we've never missed a meal on our table. And I'm not saying that to b- brag about us and our family. I'm saying that to brag on the Lord, because the Lord has literally always provided for us, and sometimes in very crazy ways. I remember this one year, this one Thanksgiving, we, were, we had two... I think, and they were very young, and we didn't really have any money to buy food. I'm not even sure how we were buying food regularly, but somehow that Thanksgiving, we ended up with three turkeys. And we didn't buy any of it. And, and, and fixings to go along with it. Like people, it just came to us. The Lord provided it. I remember at some point needing a, a, another vehicle, and, and we were at another church. And someone walked up to me and handed me an envelope full of money for no reason. And they never told us who it was from. They just gave it to us. And we were able to purchase a car that we needed. And again, we didn't ask for it. We didn't share a need. This was just God providing. And we've heard of other stories like that, yes? The Lord provides for his people. He takes care of his people. The exhortation is to honor the Lord with your wealth, whatever your wealth is. If you need to rearrange your priorities, rearrange your priorities so that you can show by your checkbook that you honor the Lord first before anyone and anything else. That's what wisdom does. Well, again, is your life oriented towards God? The wisdom of God will lead us to be faithful as the Lord is faithful. It will lead us to be dependent on the Lord's guidance. It will lead us to be holy as the Lord is holy. It will lead us to honor him with our wealth and also it will re- lead us to remember not to despise the Lord's discipline but rather to embrace it look at verses 11 and 12 my son do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights these verses underscore the primary difference between the believer and the unbeliever the primary difference between the believer and the unbeliever is not that the believer is inherently better It's not that all our behavior makes makes us acceptable. It's not that we execute all of God's commands perfectly. It's not that we use certain terminology or that we love perfectly or that we use our resources perfectly. That's not it. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer relates to God, the God who created all things, including all people. The believer relates to God as father. God relates to us as if we are his children. The Christian understands that God, the creator, sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We're saved through him because he is the epitome of wisdom. And he always lived in a way that pleased his father in heaven. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and wisdom and of knowledge. And we see that in his life, always living to do the will of his father. So much so that he was called Jesus Christ, the righteous. Righteous in the eyes of God. And so much so that he became the perfect sacrifice for us. He was able to shed his blood for us. His blood was sufficient as payment for our penalty because he lived a life of wisdom. He always did what was pleasing to his Father. He was righteous. And because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do, because of what Jesus did, we are forgiven. When we put our trust in Him. Because of what Jesus did, we are accepted into the family of God. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we are adopted as children. And John says, See how great a love the Father has lavished on us, that now we are called children of God. Because we're children, We know the discipline of the Lord. Solomon refers to this discipline in our text. Whereas in a broader context of Scripture, when we talk about discipline, the discipline of the Lord, we tend to think in terms of trials, certain difficulty that the Lord brings into our life, kind of like we read from Peter earlier, the, the, the purifying fires of trial and how the Lord uses those things. There's also a different way to think about his discipline and that's what Solomon is talking about here. Not 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 primarily the the difficulties that we go through, but the discipline in terms of the correction that he gives to us. The 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 teaching sort of correction that God gives in his word. That's the discipline that Solomon is referring to. This is discipline that instructs and it's clear in the poetic line Paul Paul. Solomon calls it discipline in the first half of the line, but he calls it reproof in the second half of the line. And then in the next verse, he follows up again for whom the Lord loves. He reproves. So we're talking about the teaching ministry of our father in our life when he corrects us through his word, through his truth. Some of what he says in this section is corrective. Yes. Be faithful. If you're not being faithful, then you're not walking in wisdom. Be dependent. If you're leaning on your own understanding, then you're not walking in wisdom. Be holy. If you're turning towards evil, then you're not walking in wisdom. Be giving. If you're not honoring the Lord with your wealth, then you're not walking in wisdom. Be humble. If you despise the discipline of the Lord, then you're not walking in wisdom. Some of what he's going to say later is corrective. Find wisdom and do not let it go. Do not withhold what is good. Do not plan evil. Do not be quarrelsome. Do not envy. Do not be proud. Wisdom literature in general and in the Proverbs in particular is both full of positive encouragement as well as words of correction. And so wisdom dictates, just as we stated in chapter one, that it is the fool who despises discipline and instruction, whereas the wise embrace the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Solomon is encouraging his son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord and do not be weary of his reproof. Children grumble, they tend to grumble when they're corrected Even adults do when they're corrected Sometimes it's because we're embarrassed Often it's our our ego, our pride that's embarrassed But the point of this text is that wisdom will remind us That the Lord does not give corrective teaching Because he's being mean Because he's trying to punish us He's not giving corrective teaching As retribution for disobedience The reason why the Lord gives corrective teaching Is because he loves us Because he desires our good. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time it seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. In verse 11 in that text, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In the context of Hebrews 12 is talking about trials in general. But the principles are still the same. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. If you don't face the Lord's discipline, then you don't belong to Him. You're not His child. You're not His son. You're not His daughter. The Lord's discipline is akin to discipline that our earthly parents gave to us, the good ones at least. And no one disciplines, no one likes discipline, but the end of discipline, the goal of discipline, is our good, so that we may share in His holiness. The obvious, easy application for parents of course, is that we need to make sure that we provide both positive encouragement as well as corrective teaching for our children. And our corrective teaching has to have as its motive love and the good of our children. They can easily pick up on it when it's not. That is our job. Not to correct because our children's actions embarrass us in public. We see that a lot of times. The parents just kind of let the kids do whatever they want and then when the parent feels embarrassed, they yell and scream and fuss at their kid to try to get them on track. Not to correct their children because they made us angry or because they're not following a rule or command we gave two weeks ago. Not to correct in anger because we're tired or we don't feel like dealing with foolishness, but to correct out of love. We ought to correct for the good of our children that they may grow in holiness and righteousness. Because that's what the Lord does. That's how he parents us. And the application for all of us is to make sure that we don't grow weary of hearing the corrective teaching of the Lord. And part of that means, as we said earlier, that we need to consciously consider the value of the Lord's teaching and the corrective teaching that he has in our lives. That is what wisdom does. Those who are wise will seek to be wiser still. When we hear something that corrects our way of thinking or corrects our behavior, we need to embrace it. Not grow weary, not turn off, shut our ears to it, not say, oh, well, that's for someone else. But to see it as something that the Lord is providing for us, for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. That is what wisdom does. Well, as I said earlier, wisdom is for life. It is intended for the good life, for life that God will bless. If you desire wisdom, if you pursue wisdom, then you are pursuing a life oriented towards God, A life oriented towards God will seek to be faithful as the Lord is faithful, to be dependent on the Lord's guidance, to be holy as the Lord is holy, to honor the Lord with our wealth and to remember to embrace and not despise the Lord's discipline. Next week, we'll look at the other two main points in the text that wisdom leads to a life blessed by God and that wisdom leads to a life secured by God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. We pray that you would work through your word to give us the wisdom that we need to live a life that is pleasing to you. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be trusting in you in your will in your way. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to honor you with all of our wealth. Help us, Father, to see your corrective teaching in our lives as valuable as a valuable treasure, a treasure of great price. Help us to embrace it. Help us to encourage one another in that way, both for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.